Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 83, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 83, Jamie in a Storm of Swords, chapter 4. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor or liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit on the Maester Monthly podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric on Twitter. Who? Whomst? I don't know. Who, who are you? Who is that? Gone for You've so abandoned long. us. We don't know who you are. But, you know, in our time of need, I am here uh, on the other <laughs> side of the world. It's a global emergency, yet I am here showing up. The global emergency has <laughs> changed my travel plans. And therefore, we are doing it live. We are recording. We're doing it live! International <laughs> edition. Girls Gone Canon. Girls Gone Global. National Global. Girls Gone Global. Yeah, that's a good... I do like that. A good ring. And so... It's a good ring about yeah, it. Yeah, so everyone, I want to apologize for my audio this week. Um, you know, we're not recording in the most ideal conditions right now i'm basically in a sauna of my own (laughs) making uh in order to make the audio as best as it can be with the conditions i'm working in and the resources i have right now so i think it's classic i feel like it's uh kicking it old school you know like 2017 it it feels like rough it feels raw i feel like this is a new week like a new host, oh you know, God. like you left for a couple weeks, and I feel like it was good time to spend apart. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. Spice up our relationship a little. <laughs> well, last time uh, we spiced up our relationship with a threesome, if you guys remember, with Jean. Wow, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, we did we did not do that. We had Jean on. She was wonderful. She was great. She uh, delivered a lot of really great insights, and we'll be heralding to some of them in this upcoming episode. And I hope you yes. all enjoyed that. That was a really awesome episode to record. And of course, Chloe had a few other guests on as part of, you know, spicing up our relationship. I actually had... God, fuck off. I had three guests come on. Okay, Eliana, three this is not hosts. fair. It's not fair what you did to me. I had three other hosts. Uh, Wow, I feel really shamed right now. I had three other hosts come on the podcast, and we did a discussion. Uh, A discussion, if you do not follow our His Dark Materials podcast, is where we talk about the outer books and uh, all of the books in whole. We spoil the fuck out of the His Dark Materials series, is what I'm saying. And Eliana just got to join some, but she did not come to this dusty discussion where I had her Dark Materials podcasts, Faye, and I had Ian and Amy from the Dark Material podcast on with me. We talked about The Secret Commonwealth, the second book in Philip Pullman's Books of Dust. Uh, it's out right now for public by now. If you're listening to this episode, hopefully you will have downloaded it. Check it out if you are a fan of that series. But Eliana was not invited anyways. Not only was she abandoning me, she was not invited because it was not her style. She said three at once, not my style. No. She prefers a more intimate setting. Yeah, you know, that's why I'm here. Like a sauna. Like a sauna of just me and this, like, giant blue pig. I feel like you're a little early for this. If you had waited just, like, another week or so, you know, you could have uh, been in the sauna at the same time as Jamie. That's true. Oh, man. 
You can just tack that on. We're not prepared to do that chapter. We can just tack on what's maybe one of the most important chapters in the entire series to this one. <laughs> no, no, we are definitely waiting for that. But first, we have a lot to get through in this episode, you guys. Uh, Ice and Fire Con coming up. If you guys remember, we have been talking about our Ice and Fire Con giveaway where the winner of this randomly selected giveaway would win some Girls Gone Canon merchandise. A free weekend pass to Ice and FireCon, beverages of their choosing from both girls. Um, and you guys, we chose a winner. I'm really excited about it. I, I was pretty pumped. I, I feel bad because I wanted everyone to win. If I could, I'd buy every single person that listens to our podcast tickets to Ice and FireCon, but it wouldn't hold that many people. So um, that would be problematic. But I would. I would if I could. All right. So our Ice and FireCon giveaway winner, thanks to a special special uh mystery patron who has a uh, you know been again patroning other people throughout putting cans in many different baskets putting eggs in many different baskets Illyria Mopatis <laughs> eating cheese I actually don't know actually legitimately this is a mysterious benefactor I just want to clarify it is not me and Chloe it is indeed Illyria Mopatis <laughs> But actually, it really actually isn't me and Chloe. It is actually a mysterious benefactor. Um, thank you, Nick Fox. Our winner. Oh, we missed it. <laughs> Whatever. We made it backwards. Whatever. We gotta keep people on their toes. Especially when they're part of our sweet foot tier. As Nick Fox, our randomly chosen winner, has uh, is... Nick Fox's entry uh, was Veramir, which is interesting, very bold. Um, again, the entries were, the, the winner was selected via randomization. Um, Chloe put all the names in to like a randomizer thing, and then it just picked Nick Fox. Selected them. It's so magic. Like, I didn't know how they all did it. You know, like, I'm like, how do the people do it? And I didn't really have a code. I didn't really feel like running Java for it. So I was just like, oh, you could just put them into the e-bucket. Yeah. Chloe threw a bunch of leeches in. Oh, my God. Fire. <laughs> and Nick Fox, I guess, survived. She forgot to throw that leech in. But. Uh, they're coming, though, and we're going to hang out with them and meet them. And I think that's really exciting. So uh, I'm really excited for Ice and Fire Con. It's it's soon it is like sooner every day (sighs) well thank you so much to everyone who participated uh hopefully we'll get to read a few of those emails over the next weeks of jamie i know we got a lot of jamie pov emails actually and only a couple of uh some of my favorites so i was like wow i don't think we even got a brand now that i say it but big thank you to everyone who participated it still is surprising to me and, you know, one day we'll discuss this more when we get to the brand chapters. Maybe people's, like, perceptions of brand will change because we'll have wins out by then. Who knows? We'll ha- we're going to have wins out next week. But, I mean, like, brand... Was that giving away when brand is coming too much? Okay. But, like, I was just so surprised to find out that people didn't like brand POVs. I know that Anne aka sweet yft of the hype swatch though sees brand as actually one of her favorite povs well that's because you know she has good taste and she's french 
<laughs> we definitely foresee some Ice and Fire Con giveaways in the future happening, though. Uh, maybe not only by Illyrio Mopatis, maybe multiple, you never know, and other nifty giveaways for A Song of Ice and Fire things. And speaking of patrons, a big thank you to some of the new patrons we've had in the last few weeks, like Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, May, Eric, and our friends over at the Dark Material Podcast who were just on that episode we talked about, the discussion. Uh, thanks again, you guys. We are going to be so much more active on Patreon soon, as soon as Mom comes home. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm excited we'll that see. we have a Mistress of Horse now. I know. I, I, I kind of feel like they have other other people they're mistressing of horse so i feel dirty about it in a way but at the same time i'm like yeah whatever they're the best so best in the game i can't stop thinking about like i i just watched this rick and morty episode about dragons and soul bonding and that's all i can think about um as we have our discussions today of other horsing of horsing around in general but let's kick off our lightning round with a someone also associated with horses Arya, too. After hearing the Ghost of High Heart's visions, Arya travels with part of the Brotherhood to Acorn Hall. Daenerys, too. Frustrated with what Astapor offers her, Daenerys turns to Eerie for sexual comfort and to Jorah for his advice. Bran, too. After meeting Littles in the woods, Bran hears a sad old story, one new to only him. Hmm... It's my favorite chapter in all of the books. Did you know that? It is. It's my favorite is chapter. It? That's my favorite chapter. Brand two. Huh. Brand two, ASOS, and Sansa seven? ASOS? Yeah. Yeah. Davos three. Davos is visited by shitty guests while he's stuck in prison. Truth. John three. John, this part from Ghost at the Ball, and joins his soul to a new one. Daenerys three. It's not her, spoiler. Dracaris. Sansa 3. Sansa gets catfished. Oh my god. Arya 5. Arya learns about the Battle of the Bells and sees a familiar face at the Peach. John 4. There are so many John chapters, but you all know that. We just went through him for like, I don't know, more than half a year. They make you read and read. <laughs> the climbers on the wall do not... Find Jorman's horn. Gasp. Now, you guys, we are going to put a warning up top. This episode does have some pretty, pretty harsh violence in it. Some sexual violence, some regular physical violence, and just some good old emotional trauma. Uh, so if you're going to hop on board, please be wary of that going in. We will be talking a little bit about that. We'll bumper it while we do. But this is Jamie 4. Jamie's wound is infected, and the mummer's aggression comes too close for comfort. They are delivered into the hands of Roose Bolton, who's displeased at the prisoner's condition. And so we start with the opening line of Jamie <sighs> 4. His hand burned. What a chapter opening. It launches into what Ares was doing at court without even saying it. It frames how you view Jamie, his actions, and his thoughts in this chapter. His hand burned um it's you immediately think oh my god it's his hand that he just lost but it's just by the end of the chapter it's so much more than that yeah absolutely george never really like say you know he starts the before and after of the act and just goes through the consequences of it 
um, because it, it's been days since they've cauterized the wound, and even without the hand, still, it's the worst pain he's ever felt. He called on, like, whatever he could to forget the pain, and he even, like, said prayers he didn't believe in. He was crying from the pain, right? The, the mummers are laughing at him, and he's prayed for the fever to burn away his tears. It's, so this, you, you begin to see a little bit of empathy from Jamie, that beginning of trying to understand how other people feel, because now he thinks, now I know how Tyrion has felt all those times they laughed at him. Yeah, you see that softening towards Brienne. He's stuck together with her, sharing a horse. Uh, and there's just a lot of cruel stuff that happens while they're on the road. We'll detail some of it. Uh, the mummers are usually just like really graphically horrible. Uh, one of the days of the riding, which they're on this journey forever, the mummers force them to ride face to face instead of back to back, and we're mocking them as lovers. And there's this passage I want to highlight. And what a lovely sight they are. T'would be cruel to separate the good knight and his lady. Then he laughed that high, shrill laugh of his and said, Ha! But which one is the knight and which one is the lady? Yeah. That feels like a, a perverse, like, a twisted, all men are ladies and all men are knights from Duncan Egg. Like, this is like a very much a fairy tale gone wrong, a fairy tale gone dark. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, there's a lot of, of course, those Beauty and the Beast overtones throughout this book specifically, and this is one of the ways it manifests. And I think the way that they're bound together, right, facing one another, it, it in a very literal way shows how Brienne and, I, and Jamie's identities begin to blend into one another as they start to learn from each other. And, like, the imagery of them actually very much reminds me of this idea from Plato's symposiums regarding love. Uh, the idea that is that once upon a time, like, humanity was powerful enough to rival the gods, and humanity looked different. Uh, I'm just going to read aloud this quote. Um, For the original human nature was not like the present, but different. The sexes were not two, as they are now, but originally three in number. There was man, woman, and the union of the two, having a name corresponding to this double nature, which had once a real existence, but is now lost, and the word androgynous is only preserved as a term of reproach. In the second place, the primeval man was round, his back and sides forming a circle, and he had four hands and four feet, one head with two faces, looking opposite ways, set on a round neck and precisely alike. Also four ears, two privy members, and the remainder to correspond. He could walk upright, as men do now, backwards or forwards as he pleased, and he could also roll over and over at a great pace, turning on his four hands and four feet, eight in all, like tumblers going over and over with their legs in the air. This was when he wanted to run fast. This, this, this doesn't sound like it, but apparently this is an image of power, everyone, from Plato's Symposiums. Mm. Each of the different... Plato, wow, you dog. <laughs> this is power. So powerful. Each of the... You animal. Literally. Each of the sexes corresponded like with a different celestial body, and like the gods were like, I hate this. This sucks. Uh, they're too powerful and super annoying, but they also just couldn't get rid of humanity because they're like, we still need them to like worship and sacrifice to us, but we need to humble them. So Zeus comes up with this idea. He's like, but what if we put them in two and cuts the humans in half? There's a line. And that's how we got capitalism. Huh? 
That's literally capitalism. I have no idea what you just said. Yeah, like the that's Greek what gods he did. here. Like, let's cut the, them this is half. literally, I mean, let's Actually, all give them no, jobs. Like, keep them beneath us. Yeah. There's this great line that I want to call out as part of the imagery so that we can understand exactly what it is like. It is, and it's like describing as you might divide an egg with a hair. Which, can some, I, I would a historian please advise me? Is this something ancient people just used to do often? Cut eggs using hairs. That makes sense. Does it? Yeah, that makes sense. Does it? Like, think about, like, braided hair. Like, and now, now think about slicing with just, like, a piece of hair, a slice of hair, like, tooth floss. Right, but why would I use that when I could use a knife or literally anything else that is not a hair? They might not have hair or a knife. They might have hair and no knife. And they could just bite into Some the might egg. have knife and no hair, but... Anyway. Yeah, but... This is the debate. Fancy people, I don't know. This is the debate. No. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the, this this having is part of why people are always searching for, essentially, their other half. Ignoring all the other real, weird things that Plato ends up saying about adultery and sexuality and pederasty and the justification of it. Very weird. The point is... There's something very platonic, capital P, philosophical, like, about this arrangement of Jamie and Brienne, right? Not that they're just friends, platonic, but platonic and, like, that ideal, right? Um, and, and it is interesting because especially with that context coming back to gender, like, Jamie's in this moment reassessing his manhood, Brienne's struggling to perform Westerosi womanhood and that blurring of those roles comes through in in the way that the brave companions are mocking them and how the two have to learn to define themselves. Kind of just sick though to think yeah. about how they like force it together. Like it, this whole entire chapter almost can read kind of horror when you put Heron Hall back into it, which I think we'll talk about a lot as we get to Heron Hall, but just really like a horror movie. Like, now you guys are going to do this. Welcome to Saw. He thinks he would teach them if he was a knight or if she was a lady, uh, if he had his hand. But he doesn't. Like, he is knocked down. He is in pain. He's numb. None of it matters. All that matters is the pain of his hand. And Brienne is super warm against him and starts to feel comfortable when they're pressed face to face. Interesting. Although they both have horrendous breath, he comments. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. That's gross. That's all I'm thinking about this whole time. Them pressed together, their, like, sexuality on each other, whether they like it or not, her titties on his arm, apparently. And it's just, like, all he can think about is, man, you're warm, but your breath sucks, and so does mine. I mean, it's a real sensation, you know? Probably super gross. Honestly, everyone's breath is probably terrible in this... Oh, except for Littlefinger. Remember, Littlefinger eats, like, mints or something. I forgot that. Like fucking tobacco mint. Maybe. They wouldn't have tobacco. Littlefinger fucking chews. He would be the kind of guy who chews, though. It's real. Where Jamie's hand has grown infected, his hand, as you said, keeps smacking Brienne's boobs as they ride. Uh, and by that, he means the hand that's hanging around his neck that is no longer attached to him. He can't eat, for his throat is too raw, so he drinks some wine and water when offered. At one point, they give him horse piss, and they laugh about it, and he pukes it up after. They give him horse piss, and is it sterile? I don't know. Medievalists weigh in? 
or actual horses horses biologists someone please tell us about horse pee animalists yes i don't know yeah they like feed him horse piss and then they laugh about it and he pukes it up after but he was so thirsty that he just drank it and yeah he was just like whatever so sad yeah there's a lot of interesting like imagery attached to jamie regarding horses right throughout this chapter like as though he was just like throughout his whole art that's true yeah, I mean, like, the horses, of course, have a lot of associated imagery throughout, like, especially in Duck and Egg, right? With, like, being part of chivalry, fighting, war, and, like, so for it to be likened to Jamie, And even, like, in those first, in his first chapters, now that I think about it, there's that whole, like, this person gets this kind of horse, this person gets this kind of horse. And this isn't just mm-hmm. us talking about, like, our horse years. This is, I think, this is actually in the text. Well, and I mean, George has obviously put a lot of focus on that. When Daenerys gets her horse oh. in A Game of Thrones, it's so special, right? right? Like, it's a very magical moment. It is a, it's an awakening. And for Jamie, he ends up getting honor. And, you know, people, the what's, honor's a horse. Like, for Jamie, that's what he says. But it's the true sign of being a knight, being, a, you know, a knight on horse, uh, chivalrous and Arthurian, you know, that's the very image of a true knight is the knight on horse in gleaming, glittering armor. And that's who Jamie wanted to be his whole life. And now he sees his horses as nothing, you know? Yeah, and, and that's even um, how Tyrion, Tyrion perceived him, right? That's something that was meaningful to Tyrion when he was taken by Catelyn. He felt grief when his horse was killed because he was like that's the horse that my brother jamie who he sees as very much his hero who's been defending him for a lot of his life which is a farce right like he and then that horse dies and like that's sad for him but like jamie's finding he thought he was a horse but maybe you know it's all piss yeah and i mean in war horses die dude that's true that's war so they give Brienne, and this is like a very on-the-nose huh, thing, that they give her the role of cleaning up Jamie's vomit. They put her in this maternal, this female, like... And everyone that sees her is like, why are you in armor? What are you doing? You can't be that profession. Mm-hmm. But they immediately are like, well, you can clean Jamie up. That's your job. You are the, the mom of Jamie Lannister, since he has no mother now, ever, actually, except yeah. for that one time. And he soils himself too so he is like unable to take care of himself he is not feeling well and his fever is just like progressing this whole time and they just like put her in this maternal role kind of like what we talked about with that fever dream a while back we chatted about how you know she's kind of like joanna in that fever dream way that he sees her just like this recreation of the mother he didn't have and how the only time Brienne even talks about her mother i've noticed in these books is in Catalan yeah. in Clash of Kings once, and that's it. Like, yes, she was too young to remember her, is what we learn, and she remembers her father having a different woman every year, Selwyn the stud, but, like, she never thinks about her mother or her mom, not once, not even one time, and I found that astonishing, especially with how maternal she is in general towards Jamie. Uh, she's just, and I guess it's being a true knight, right, I guess, is the whole thing, but she's very, like careful and takes care of him even as they get into Hall, and he kind of gets worse yeah and it kind of makes you think the idea of what is the role of the mother right it's not just the mother can embody those i think masculine attributes right um the way that yeah Rian kind of sits in the middle um in terms of 
the stereotypes like or, or the, the those gender roles and mage mormont protection like your bear cubs protector, yes. yeah a protector role and and the mother encompassing that i mean like there's catelyn as you said but i've also you know when people do breakdowns of house stark as faces of the seven i actually interpret ned as the mother as opposed to the father because of that protective role um protecting the children whereas catelyn especially as lady stoneheart like does more of that father and judgment interesting that's a very that is the spicy take i've been digging Isn't for thank spicy? you i don't know i just think it's a maybe not spicy i just think it's a hot take i like it interesting i like it it i like it i like it i like i did i think i did write about it somewhere and didn't get much traction oh. Well, I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> we flashed to another morning on the journey. Jamie's feeling a little bit stronger. So he's like, you know what? Fuck it. He reaches for Simmons at Rock from their Dornishman's belt with his good hand. He makes play for it, tries to kill Shagwell. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't go so well. He l- can't land it. He trips. He falls to his knees. We get this quote. Rorge finally flung him aside and kicked the sword from Jamie's feeble fingers as he tried to bring it up. That was amusing, Kingslayer, said Vargo Hout. But if you try again, I shall take over the hand, or perhaps the foot. Jamie lay on his back afterward, staring at the night sky, trying not to feel the pain that snaked up his right arm every time he moved it. The night was strangely beautiful. The moon was a graceful crescent, and it seemed as though he had never seen so many stars. The king's crown was at the zenith, and he could see the stallion rearing and there the swan. The moon made shy as ever, was half hidden behind a pine tree. How can such a night be beautiful? He asked himself. Why would the stars want to look down on such as me? There's something that is just so Shakespeare about this passage right here, and I can't put my tongue completely on it. But it's written in like such romantic meter and language. Uh-huh. It reminds me even a bit of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, like the part that I am too bold, tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business to entreat her eyes, to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars. Um, I I don't know what it is, but it's something about the language of just the stars in the night, and especially for Jamie when he's on his way to Harrenhal, where he remembers those big, vast, starry nights, uh, and he's returning in such a different way. I I definitely see it, and I think it's something that I would have to think more on, like how, especially with like how desire plays out in Jamie's storyline for the other, um, as projected into Circe, and then later on maybe into Brienne, but maybe more Brienne's. own person and then later on jamie's desire for self and how that manifests in both those stories yeah there's something in there there's just something and i mean their story is doomed to be tragic there's no way that they're going to be together forever unfortunately that's just war baby that's war baby that's what's about to happen there's ice zombies who knows it's wild card baby wild card and you know, right now things things are looking pretty pretty testy in their relationship. You know, with a uh, being sent by the other fire zombie. It also seems like there's something here with Jamie and Vargo. Vargo was saying that he was amusing or amusing, as you might have heard me say. 
<laughs> we don't deserve me. We don't. Um, the memory of Tyrion tumbling around for jest in the tables for Uncle Jerrion that George kind of half retconned, right? Uh, it just wasn't physically like a thing that he should have put in. It just didn't make sense. So Tyrion reminds Tywin that he would be a man grown, free to travel where he wished because Tywin was like, no, you can't take my money and go to the free cities, Tyrion. You're irresponsible and you are bad at making good choices. And you can't. And then he gives a speech and he's like, no man is free. Only children and fools think elsewise. Go by all means. Wear motley and stand on your head to amuse the spice lords and the cheese kings. Eh? Just see that you pay your own way and put aside any thoughts of returning. At that, the boy's defiance had crumbled. If it is useful occupation require, useful occupation you will have, his father then said. And then he later thinks... I need a cup of wine to wash the taste of Tywin from my mouth. A skin of wine would serve me better. So that's Tyrion Three: A Dance with Dragons. Uh, for Jamie on his journey to Harrenhal, he's likely having his own memory of Tywin that he's mustering, right? Like the journey to Harrenhal, he's revisiting this state of perpetual 15 years old that he's been stuck in. And Tywin, like, he's probably thinking of him telling him of his responsibilities and his duties to House Lannister and what he's good at. Like, what Tyrion was good at was managing the sewage. What Jaime was good at was he was being set up to be a knight and a lord of House Lannister, and then it was all taken away from him by Aerys. And now here Jaime is going back to that place that ruined it all, that turned Tywin into this awful, like, gold villain where all the stars died for Jaime Lannister. Wow. It is where all the stars died for him. All those legends written up there. Uh, and here they are, looking down at him once, once more. more. Comes back. And the, I mean, like, Karen Hall, as we're going to discuss probably next episode, is very much a big turning point once more, right, for Jamie. Like, there are a couple of places that serve as very... as gates, right, in the story. The inn at the crossroads is one of them. Of course, Winterfell is another. And Harrenhal is that for Jamie. Um, and then we get. There's a lot of like good quotes, a lot of good lines. That... I know I couldn't not put this in. It was too it's, good. It's good in different ways. I think for both of us, for me, I think it's hilarious. For you, I think it's poetic. <laughs> uh, um, you can be Brienne then. Because I really relate to JB in this moment. Oh, you're so I kind. I JB in this. Oh my god. Jamie, Brienne whispered, so faintly he thought he was dreaming it. Jamie, what are you doing? Dying. He whispered back. <laughs> and like, in the side notes that, yeah. The side notes you can't all see. I was just like, same. Like, I related so hard when I saw that. I was like, wow, yes. Yup, yup, same. I feel this daily. <sighs> no, she said. No, you must live. He wanted to laugh. Stop telling me what to do, wench. I'll die if it pleases me. Are you so craven? The word shocked him. He was Jamie Lannister, a knight of the Kingsguard. He was the Kingslayer. No man had ever called him Craven. Other things they called him, yes, Oathbreaker, liar, murderer. They said he was cruel, treacherous, reckless, but never Craven. He was who he was. Jon Snow. Bastard. Oathbreaker. 
motherless, friendless, and damned. Just thought I'd put that out there. Same thing. It's, I think, it is the same energy. Cruel, treacherous, reckless. It absolutely is. I mean, Oathbreaker, liar, murderer. Yeah, like that. the same way that it's like... It reminds me of Sam. A lot of this discussion in, you know, the roles for these kind of high lords gets reminds me of him with the whole being craven. So Sam is kind of another guy who had a horrid father, overbearing father, right? And I think uh, you might not call it, I guess, a disability so much in some certain ways in the physical form, but he does have a medical condition that has set him aside, ostracized him from the society where these dudes have like ham bones on their chests and put him in a place where society like just allows him, the son of a super high lord, to be treated like this and cast to this land of misfit toys in the north, right? Like nobody even raises a finger because Randall Tarley is a scary motherfucker and Sam is just some like boy who's overweight and weak and they're like, yeah, whatever, he'll just die there. Yeah, and I think that that makes sense, especially because, what, we get both Sam and Jamie's POVs introduced in this book. And obviously part of it is what they show us into the world. But so much of, I think, Jamie getting his own POV is thematic, is about the character-driven story. And for Sam to be a part of that, I think, I don't think that's, like, that. that's definitely a planned move on the literary sense. For him to play foil to Jamie like that. It is kind of Jamie's foil, right? In a way. Absolutely. Like, that is the other Jamie in this story. He goes, that's the the yin to Jamie's yang Uh, in this story. Besides Tyrion, yeah. Like, he could never live up to any of those societal expectations. And he still can't, yet he still exhibits heroism regardless. He knows that the stories aren't for him. And that way, you know, maybe Mm. Sam is also kind of like Brienne, right? Well, and that's why Brienne and Jamie come together so hard. I also really relate to Jamie's line of stop telling me what to do. I see that people do. <laughs> Dying. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, especially with like Brienne right there, Jamie's story, along with Sam's, right? Uh, all of these are interrogations on what constitutes as masculinity and with masculinity, of course, being you know, positioned as good in Westerosi society uh, and they're what they interpret masculinity as, right? Because gender is different in different cultures. Um, and, like, Jamie could get away with all the things that he did, like, right? Being an oathbreaker, a murderer, treacherous and reckless as long as he wasn't goddamned. And he was fine with all that as long as he wasn't interpreted as craven because he could perform being not craven solely by being able to fight and willing to do so. And I think that along with Sam's story starting now, like you see, of course, a lot of connection between Jamie and Beerston's stories, not just like that they're both part of the Kingsguard, but like they started interesting times for these characters. Like Jamie's physically weakened due to his imprisonment. He's stripped of his ability to perform again that masculinity through fighting. And A Song of Ice and Fire is just like, very meta and it's concerned with stories and legends and for a lot of it like Barristan and Jamie are portrayed as living legends like coming back to Bran Bran's like oh my god it's Barristan sell me wow amaze um 
And, like, we start both of their POVs, like, towards the time that they stop being those living legends and just become humans again. There's this line later in this chapter of, it was his right hand that made him a knight, his right arm that made him a man. And, like, without the thing that made him a knight, which wasn't his honor, for sure, and it, like, wasn't him adhering to his oaths, it was just his masculinity being able to fight and his willingness slash ability to use that his body... Jamie's story is like I think about de- deconstructing not just the myth of Jamie the White Knight, Jamie the Kingslayer. It's not just about deconstructing the myth of knighthood, but dis- deconstructing the myth of manhood in Westeros. It's not about the look of the person. We learned that when Robert was this warrior type, and then he goes to shit because he's complacent and he's depressed, and he just lets that eat away at him yeah. and lets the acedia take hold. Right? Like John thinks uh, that this is what a king should look like about yeah. Jamie damned um but that's not what makes a man what makes a man are the actions that that person does and it's what makes a human right like it's humanity it's finding that common humanity uh jamie's actions in killing Ares were uh to protect his loved ones and to protect the city that Ares was about to turn to dust i mean that's likened to what dunk did right uh, Dunk had to go in and stop the boy that he loved, that he had been with since the boy was a child, and that he had watched grow up and been proud of as king and watched do amazing things. Uh, but Jamie was forced into the situation where he didn't even love the person. He just had to put them down. I think it's just a really interesting look that it doesn't matter what shape your chest is or your body is. Uh, it's the actions that make you, right? Like Just as Barristan took Ares out of Duskendale, Jamie had to end him. That exact madness, quote unquote, that took hold in him. Um, it's just, it's a really interesting look at different men and what their actions did and why they did them, the motivations that they did them for. Yeah, and it, it comes through so much when, because the Kingsguard are all named, right? Like so many of them mythologize as like pinnacle of manhood. And it stands very much in contrast to John's story, right? Like as you said, damned. I'll just, so much of the Night's Watch is about that anonymity. Like, some of them might be remembered every now and then, but it seems like a lot of the Night's Watch members that are, like, very much remembered are those who did, like, bad shit and broke their oaths. Like, the Night's King. Not, like, the Night's King. Well, and it comes down to that idea of idolizing. So, like, it's a systemic thing, right? They all grew up wanting to be knights, but it turns out that once you become a knight, you learn that the world is false. It's bad. Capitalism is bad. No, I'm just kidding. The industrial war machine that is Westeros is bad. And it turns out that idolizing your war heroes, Barristan or Arthur Dane, uh, once you get up close and you get under that grimy surface from idolizing your war hero, you learn that those war heroes are just like coated in thick trauma from the bullshit they had to do in this system that has just ground them to a fucking pulp you know like you don't get anywhere from idolizing these war heroes and then you look at the north and you look at these famous people like the knight's king and you realize like ah those are the people that were trying to break out of that system but then it turns out like they also wanted to like bring an apocalypse but you know what i mean yeah Um, it's a problem they really have a problem in westeros don't they they really really do and that's why Jamie... Vote blue no matter what. <laughs> oh my god. That's why Jamie asks, what are his other options? Die? Yes. And Brienne's <laughs> like, no. 
no, you could live and take revenge, you dumbass. But she says it a little too loudly, and Rorge then kicks her and tells her, shut the fuck up. You know, I love that theme. Uh, right with a storm of swords, you start getting those little tickles of that vengeance, right? And that, like, you know, we don't have to be beaten down, but people keep beating them down. I mean, you look at the Starks, they get pretty beat down in this book, haha. <laughs> and, you know, I was just talking with poor Quentin from Not a Cast about. One of the key differences with A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons is A Feast for Crows has like almost like an uprising oh. revenge theme, right? You have Dorne, you have Sansa, you have uh, Cersei, you have all these moments that feel like, oh, I'll get my revenge, like I'm going to do it. And A Dance with Dragons is kind of like, look into the abyss, everything's going to be lost soon, doom, sadness, cold, cannibalism. Like it's just really dreary. And Brienne serves as kind of this beacon in Jamie's journey. Like, and she's gone for a lot of it after this. Uh, and she's like the beacon in the port in a storm of swords. And she guides that puppy on home to deal with his fucking sins, you know? Uh, and then he deals with the sins and then it doesn't go so well, you know, at the end there. She comes back and she's not a good beacon anymore. Yeah. And she ends up being maybe in that same spot as he was. Un- I mean, I don't know. Who knows? where it's gonna go um but like yeah you're right she's she's not there for a lot of his story and feast yet he's she serves as sort of that guiding light for him because it stops speaking about all those heroes from legends jamie's like brand the beauty that could be a legend follow and like as you said a feast is so much about revenge and a lot of this chapter for jamie he's like trying to make that his motivating factor he's not like very good at feeling angry you know he's still like in the sad phase of and not the revenge phase but regardless i think that's a big part of why people read redemption in jamie or the potential for it because by feast which is so much about revenge that's not mm-hmm. his motivating factor in feast i mean nothing for jamie his is a quiet moment right like his moment is put this in the fire it's a quiet reckoning it's not like oh sand snakes oh i am a lioness i will not cringe for them it's not that's you know what's gonna happen sansa you're gonna be queen which will happen um it's jamie choosing uh choosing something different you know making a choice and that choice is such a quiet quiet thing but that's his moment Something that uh, I thought of in this chapter, that idea of a quiet choice where Jamie decides to live, as you said, it's like internally, but it reminds me of, mm-hmm. I, I think this happened, right? I don't know. I blocked out parts of season eight where Beric tells Arya, live. And I thought of that during this chapter. I uh, I really actually, it's cheesy, but I did like that. Yeah. And I really also liked that it wound up with Sandor's at the end when he said, like, no, you can't have this kill. Like, it'll ruin you if you take this kill, Arya. You'll die. Um, yeah, I, I really actually liked that theme, and that does kind of make me think of this. And this is a quiet choice. Right here, Jamie chooses to live. Uh, the next book, he chooses to maybe take a different road. And no, they aren't huge, huge changes. He still ends up, you know, like, working for his family name, but he's figuring uh-huh. it out. So that's better than what he was doing before. He's trying. He's out there. And so he thinks during this, he's like, have I really become craven? Maybe maybe all I was was a machine, a sword. And he thinks he can't die. Cersei's waiting for him. And Tyrion, who loved him for a lie. And his enemies, too, like the young wolf and Edmure Tully and the brave companions. 
the next day, he kind of wakes up with a purpose because of it. Like, coming back to that uh, horse imagery surrounding Jamie again, and, like, he takes it down to give him strength. I mean, like, it works for horses. Why can't it work for people? Anyways, every bite is coupled with him telling himself to live for his family. When I reach King's Landing, I'll have a new hand forged, a golden hand, and one day I'll use it to rip out Vargo Hote's throat. I don't know about that. It's a good line, though. Vargo Hote's throat, you know? It's got a ring to it. Here, as we've been saying, Jamie's struggling with that idea of living for himself versus living for the glory of House Lannister. And Mm -hmm. I think that becomes a large part of the shift in his story at the end of, like, Storm. Like, actually... Now that I think about it, all of Jamie's story, even since his childhood, has been that tension between living for himself and living for the glory of House Lannister. Because, I mean, he made that choice, right? To leave House Lannister and be like, yeah, I'm going to go to King's Landing, take an oath of celibacy to have sex with my sister. Totally makes sense. Brilliant. Brilliant plan. Yeah, and that's his yeah. legacy. <laughs> but, like, a large part of the shift in the story at the end of Storm is, like, he thinks about his own legacy and, like, why people deep like see a change in his character and again it comes back to what his motivation is like from that meta aspect it's like not just about his wounded pride and seeking vengeance for him he's not doing it for Cersei or for Tyrion though we do get like some hints about the reveal like of at the end of Tyrion's chapters regarding Tysha in here because Jamie's all like oh he loves me for a lie and I I mean like we should be really reading the story of Tysha and that as much in the context of Jamie's story as it is in Tyrion's, because I think mm-hmm. for all the lies about Jamie's heroism, like these existed as a pair, his acts with Ares and his acts with Tysha, especially as both of these come within the same book, right? Like there is the larger societal lie in which Jamie is a villain for breaking his oaths, yet we learn next chapter that he's actually a hero, but then there's that smaller in terms of like the number of people affected but still very heinous uh, personal lie to his brother in which he is positioned as the hero to Tyrion, but he's actually a villain because he's an accomplice in the rape of Tysha and the assault of Tyrion. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that kind of gets swept under because you just don't think about it when you're in this POV, and it really frames it well. It's important in these chapters to remember, too, that like as he goes forward after that break, he finally... He tries to do as minimal damage in the Lannister name, right, as he can, even though he's still doing it in the Lannister name. And he even starts to think of kind of following those oaths that he swore about not taking arms up against the Tullys or Starks. And at the same time, we know where Tyrion is and where he's heading. Uh, He's going this opposite way of Jaime, right? Like, so that tension is still being built even after it's already broken in King's Landing. And that buildup for Jaime... Him going home to all that he lived for, his dad's scorn, his sister's bosom, his brother's dry wit, all of it gone, though, when he gets like back to King's Landing. It was all a lie. This whole journey was built on mm. gold and lies, and it, it's it's kind of heart-wrenching. Like, that's why he has to make that change. It was interesting. At Worldcon he, in uh, Philadelphia in 2001, George said he intended for Feast to cover what would have been the five-year gap, right? And that some characters would be learning and they would only get one or two chapters. So you have your characters like Sansa, for example. Uh, We know now it technically only covers a little bit of time. 
compared to what he really wanted it to, but he's having Feast pull a lot of the fucking legwork. Uh, he states, this is where Jamie decides the ball is no longer basically in Cersei's court and that he's sick of all the golden lies, basically. Uh-huh. After Tywin's death, it's like there's this trigger pulled in the Lannister family and they all just fucking like split their ways and go off and like Cersei's in her deep end, Tyrion's going in his, and Jamie is somehow the only normal motherfucker that's like even headed like, like Cersei will say something about doing something. He'll look at her like, what the fuck? What is wrong with you? <laughs> like, it's like something ticked right for Jamie. For everyone else, no way. But for Jamie, all of a sudden, just something suddenly turned right. A, first of all, Cersei's intrinsically a little bit crazy. Right? Like, as we all know. Um, but, you know, Jamie, the system's worked for him, right? Like, Cersei and Tyrion go off and do, like, their own wild things because now they're like I'm free I'm free of Tywin but like not internally because I'm still dealing with the emotional damage that he's caused me but they're also like oh I can live my life and do whatever whereas for Jamie, like he didn't live with any of the same things that held back Cersei systemically right as a woman or Tyrion right as not being like or Tyrion as a dwarf right Jamie, like in terms of body everything in the system worked out right for him he wasn't changing anything he really wasn't he it was fine like yeah it sucked but he got used to his job where he just had to watch horror be committed yeah he's like this is what i'm supposed to do i guess this is how the system works and it's only now that he's like what if i didn't do that yet i will say well part of his motivations he doesn't get to come back right for rob stark because you know, other things take care of that within this book. But he does come back for Enyar Tully, and he does not... He doesn't take revenge. Fuck him up. But he doesn't, and he doesn't totally, like, yeah. fuck up Enyar Tully in the way that he thinks that he will. But he does kind of fuck over Enyar Tully. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's still fucking yeah. him over, but it's, like, gently. Oh my I God. mean, at least he's, like, threatening him first. It's <laughs> like, tenacious um, D. Little... Little foreplay, wow, okay. you know what I mean? Like, a little bit of threat yeah. first. Wow, this could be a ship. Interesting. So all this talk about these golden siblings, it makes me want to do a golden sibling reread. Like, the the Tyrion, then Jamie, then Cersei in chronological order, because I think the A Dance with Dragons Tyrion chapters are so interesting to read against Storm yeah. and Feast Jamie. Like, just... Pairing those together, ah, it's wild. I want to read it all in tandem. That sounds fun. I think that's an interesting idea. A golden reread. In a few years. Someday. someday. Let me know if you guys do it. I find it interesting. I'd like to do it just for research because, again, you just get so much. I think it's an idea. How many ways are you fucked up by Tywin? Let's count them. So the nights go by in a blur, and he sent... Jamie is spending them in pain, asleep, chained to a tree, and he's a little happy they fear him enough to tie him to a tree. He's like, good, I'm still a threat. Brienne is always bound beside him, wordless. He thinks of her as a sow. Not nice still. Jamie, come on. But he's, he's working on it. Jamie thinks they'll rape her soon enough, but she's retreated within her walls. He has no walls. He thinks they've taken all of them from him. He hears Yerswick talk about Harrenhal and laughs, because he's like, oh, that's where we've been fucking going this whole time. Right, I forgot. And Timian slashes at him with a whip for laughing. And Brienne later at night is like, why did you laugh so hard about Hall, Jamie? And he's like, 
That's where I was given my white cloak at the tourney at House Wentz place. He's like, I didn't even get to go to the tourney because Ares made me go away. This is my big glorious return. Yeah. It's pretty... It's also cynical, but also ironic. I like. I would laugh too if I were Jamie. Be like, Lamau. I don't know if I'd laugh. I'd definitely send a Lamau out to whoever told me that. He his he laughs and gets kicked and punched and then Rorge slams the boot into his hand and that makes him faint. The next night, Shagwell, Rorge, and Zolo are all preparing to rape Brienne, and Jamie thinks they will leave her a cripple too, but inside where it does not show. Our friend Lo that we talk about had a great essay that came out that was talking about sexual violence and uh, not just femininity, but also masculinity and, you know, what makes a man or woman in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. It's really great. For Jamie, he's lost the only thing that's ever been certain to him. He's always woken up and his right hand has been there. The only thing that's made up for it, every other garbage thing in the world, like Lowe says in their essay, it's perhaps not surprising he gets launched into an identity crisis after he loses his hand. He can't comprehend the idea of something being worse than losing his hand. His hair was... His hand? His hand was there when no one else was. Like, Cersei even wasn't wow. there. You know, got him. Uh, <laughs> this might be why that while, like, domestically and sexually violent in a crime of violent passion, the idea of Jamie strangling Cersei as their ending with the golden hand is, like, a very vivid theory or prediction because it's all wrapped up in this phantom hand. Uh, all of his issues get balled up, melted up, and formed into the shape of a hand. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of discussion about the hand throughout uh, Jamie's story later and together with Cersei. Hand ships, who holds it. No pun intended when I said hold. Hand jobs. Mm-hmm. You mean hand jobs? Yeah, hand jobs. Actually, literally. Both? Okay, anyways. Jamie tells Brienne to just let them take her and to go far away inside like he had done with Ares uh, burning Brandon and Rickard to Tosilo Crisps. Uh, Chloe added that line in. Um, he advises her to think about Renly or Tarth, whatever makes her happy. And we discussed this, I think, quite a bit in the last episode with Jean, right, of um, these different coping mechanisms. Rorge begins to threaten Brienne's face first, while Shagwell eggs him on, and now that I think about it, like, I I don't know that this is necessarily foreshadowing, but it's quite ironic because what, isn't it Rorge who, like, bites Brienne's cheek and falls through on some of those threats later on in Feast? Yes. In Feast, yes. And Jamie pipes up and he's like, you should take care because of sapphires. And then they're like, shut the fuck up. And they kick his stump and he passes out again. And when he comes to Vargo Hout is telling everyone they cannot touch Brienne because she's worth a bag of sapphires. And he decides to put guards on her to protect her from the other brave companions to protect them from his own. Very chivalrously, very chivalrously met Jamie, by the way, I'll give you one point. Good job suffered quite a bit um it reminds me vargo hote here putting guards on brienne to in that quote of like to protect them from his own like reminds me of john and the guards that he puts up in castle black for the free folk women um but like john did it for multiple reasons in castle black right 
yes, it was in the interest of actually protecting the women. But also, to an extent, it was about, like, protecting the men and protecting the peace because John's like, hmm, this is not going to end well for any of the men who try to just forcibly take the Free Folk women. They're going to fight back. Uh, as opposed to Vargo Hote doing it, like, he's viewing Brienne, and obviously he probably views most women like this as a commodity. If they can't be used, then they're just to be sold. Yeah, uh, earlier you brought up Barristan, and I totally forgot about Barry till now, in general. Right? I just kind of forgot about him. It's just been a while. And, you know, John and Jamie aren't the kind of guys to do that, right? Like, to view women as a commodity. John didn't look at Alice and think, this is how I can make a very advantageous match for myself. Um, It ended up being bound together with all of the Stannis machinations. Uh, Jamie, you know, you look at how he treats Pia later. At least it's kind. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have that often. You don't have these men being kind. And Jamie was indoctrinated beneath Barry's crew. Jamie didn't always have the power to make those kind of calls, right? To say, like, hey, treat that girl nice, or hey, do this. Uh, no one re- listened to the new grunt on the squad. He entered brotherhood into this league where men were like, hey, this is how it is, buddy. Can't speak out, can't ask questions. In this society that, like, nurtured that behavior and said power is allowed to do these things, Jamie got to like live for these artificial things he projected on Tyrion and Cersei, you know, Tyrion out of guilt, Cersei out of this long projected love that it turns out is a little fucked up and toxic. And now there's Brienne who he's spent this whole trip breaking down, calling her a worthless sow. And now he realizes that that assault on her body is worse than losing a hand. It's worth speaking up about. Like she made it very abundantly clear that no, she would not let them take her like that. And that's something that Jamie couldn't and didn't do before, right? It's a kind of a big turn in my opinion for his character. I know we we're gonna say that over the next few chapters, but I, I felt like this was just something really important for him. Yeah, and I mean he's for him to do it a second time, like he knows what the risks are because he did it the first time, right? He did it in the previous chapter and he lost a hand for it. And now he's just like, opened that door. He's like, fuck it. Doesn't matter what I lose. Before he was afraid of losing his job. Now he's just like lost all of the qualifications for having a job like that anyway. Um, and he's like, whatever. And Brienne's a little confused about that, right? She asks Jamie, why did you shout? You didn't need to do it. And he gives her like a snappy answer. And she's like, okay, well, thanks. And then Jamie's like, don't thank me. He gives this typical Sindiri answer. And he's like, Baka, I didn't do it for you. And and he actually just says, Alanister pays his debts. That was for the river and those rocks he dropped on Robin Ryder. Co's shaking her head at me. Nice. Yeah, uh, I don't understand you kids and your flashy shows. (laughs) Flashy shows. Just kidding. I can tell you my three favorite animes if you wanted, but we're not going to go there. As they enter Harrenhal, Vargo Hote wants to parade his prisoners around, bound to the back of a Zorse. Any commentary, Peanut Gallery? So the Zorse. The Zorse is, in fact, uh, as we have learned, thank you to our friend Warren Dudson for asking George. The Zorse is, in fact, the zebra horse hybrid. And not, not a zebra. And not just a stripy horse. It is truly that because it this is a fantasy world. I like that he literally just like was like, here's all these weirdos of like a rando, throw the dice, here's every single 
random ethnicity I could pack into like a nega brotherhood group. And they're going to be weird and into chopping people up. And um, also, here's a Zorse. They have a Zorse. And Dothraki uh, Valyrian Steel. There's somehow. honestly a lot to unpack about like what you just said of like the way that the Brave Companions are made up. We're going to... Yeah, it's, it's a little it's weird. It's very suspect, like, suspect, George. I'm just saying, I know yeah. I said it last episode with you and Jean, and we didn't explore it, but I'm just putting it out there that it is kind of like, a, George, what did you do here? And do you want us to unpack it? Because I... Anyways. He doesn't want us so... to unpack it, but, like, maybe we really, like, at some point, we're going to probably... We'll think about it. Maybe Brave Companions Patreon episode? And how they might have all gotten to be where they are. Oh my god. So, with each step, Jamie's stump gets more infected and screams with pain. And Hall is flying banners that are sworn to House Stark, Bolton and Frey, and the Direwolf. So Jamie is, like, very suspect. He's like, great, I'm going into the enemy's cavern. As they enter, he remembers taking his vows. The spot where he swore his vows is actually now a privy. Haha, <laughs> again, coincidentally... Uh, Ares didn't even let him enjoy the evening, he thinks. Yeah, and then we have this moment where, like, there's a, this dog running around, and then when the Lysini of the Brave Companions, weird again, spears a dog, and then just, like, I don't know, does, does hmm. he, like, behead the dog hmm. in the same moment? Because we only know about the spear, because now he's parading the head of this dead dog and saying, like, this is the Kingslayer's banner. Yeah. There's a lot of things in here, but we're go- I'm going to focus on this single one right now. Of Is this foreshadowing? I thought about it. I thought about it when I read this chapter, Chloe. I want you to know. Um, is this foreshadowing of the Red Wedding, which has not yet occurred? Right. There's a lot of hints towards it in this chapter and some earlier ones from Arya and Harrenhal. Um, of the Red Wedding of Rob, like with Rob Stark and then Grey Wind's head being impaled, like this moment. I know. And then, like, then them joking and saying, this is now Jamie's sigil. Like, this is the Kingslayer sigil. Is this, like, foreshadowing of, like, Jamie joining a Stark faction? Hmm. That's an interesting thought. And it's really funny that you thought all that because, you know, the first thing I thought was Harma Dog's hmm. Head. Harma Dog's Head is wild. I got really excited. I was like, oh, Harma Dog's Head. And there you go. Again, this is kind of what it feels like. Maybe it's just the way George writes these kind of characters. Um, yeah, no, that is foreshadowing, though. And it's in this book, so it's foreshadowing. I mean, it's painstakingly obvious. There's so much stupid fucking Red Wedding foreshadowing in this book. Ugh. There's so much. Yeah, and I mean, like, that's good, right? It makes it feel cohesive as a book. I mean, there's so much that I never even noticed, like, until my, like, several... Th- read through right several. like yeah didn't even oh shit yeah several th- like that is a number that's a number Vargo Hope would say and uh it yeah I, I never would have even thought about that till now so what does that say about me yeah, I mean like I didn't even notice that line until this reread so I was like huh interesting interesting I guess we're not really looking for the red wedding anymore you know what I mean like we already saw it so why would I guess our brains might not be looking for more. Our brains are like, thank you, had enough of that Satan I shit. I mean, for me, what, standed out, what stood out first and foremost is very obvious of, like, signs of the Red Wedding is, like, some of this gossip stuff we're going to get into in a second, right, with the news. Yes. But, like, this one didn't until, Love like, it. now. 
Um, but yeah, um, for now though, Jamie's just making his way into Heron Hall. Fargo Hotes like announcing his arrival as the Kingslayer and like jabs a spear at him and like I don't know this this moment and the parading of Jamie and Brienne Bound like I it reminds me of two things. It's like way of a stretch, but it kind of reminds me of like when they were parading Jesus towards Calvary for his crucifixion, right? Making him like carry his own cross as Jamie's like carrying his hand and then being like stabbed and shit. And then the second one is like the parading of Cersei in the streets of King's Landing. Obviously that one's on a much larger scale, but like this parade is very much about humiliating Jamie. And a big part of that is the loss of his manhood through his hand and see how low the Kingslayer has been brought. And that's very much what, like, I think Cersei's parade is about to, like, see how low, like, the lioness has been brought. Whereas for Cersei, it's very much about, like, her womanhood and shaming her for it uh, by exposing her body. Really great call. Um, it You kind of see the same thing with Brienne later when she's in the bear pit, right? Uh, this book has a lot of that, like, pride slaying stuff in it, but especially for the Lannisters as they fall from grace bit by bit. Jamie stops his fall as he falls using his stump out of habit, but he manages to power through the pain this time. He sees some phrase. He offers condolences for the death of their mutual relative, Cleos, who was killed by these people here. He says it loud. He says it proud. Uh, very smart. Very Catelyn Stark right there. Because what did she do? She said very loudly, I'm going to Winterfell, and then did not. And here he is going, oh, Cleos was killed by the brave companions for everyone to hear. Not that anyone cared. Very smart. No, no one cared. Brienne also is letting her attempts to get help fall on deaf ears. She's like, honor your oath to House Stark. Do you run their banners here or not? And it turns out they're like, "Mm, IDK them. And Jamie is like, interesting, what? And they're like, yeah, Stark didn't honor his oaths. Why should we honor ours? So Brienne's ready to like leave. She's like, this sucks. But Jamie's like, interesting, I'm logging on. I'm very (laughs) online. Yeah, and Jamie gets it, doesn't get it. He has to wait for a bit because turns out no one gives a shit about what Jamie wants. No one gives a shit about the Stark girls either. And what they care about now, Shag will the fool. He's here now. He's trying to. Sh- he's here to ship. He's thinking about a lion and a bear. He's excited. That's the gossip that he wants to be talking about, and that's total foreshadowing yeah, too. Just in many saying. different ways. Um, finally, Bruce Bolton makes an entrance, sets everything straight. Jamie makes a wisecrack, and Bruce is like, "I don't do jokes." He's just like, "I noticed that you have like a missing hand." I thought that the way he's introduced here was really sinister. Bolton's silence was a hundred times more threatening than Vargo Hote's slobbering malevolence. Pale as morning mist, his eyes concealed more than they told. Jamie misliked those eyes. So Jamie opens here and says his fever made him fearless against Roose Bolton. So it's notable that Jamie, without his sword hand, fears Roose Bolton. And Roose is a fucking weird creep here. He's chilly. He's spooky. He's super pale. He's icy. Uh, it's very chilling. It's a very chilling scene to enter Hall again. And this leech lord is who's heading it. Absolutely. I do think that Roose Bolton's scary. Together, Roose and Vargo, uh, Roose is like, all right, so I don't do jokes, but I'm here to deliver. 
that info dump, the gossip that you, Jamie Lannister, truly want, assisted here by Vargo Hote, we will do an info dump. So to run through it quickly, Rob Stark has executed Lord Karstark. Lord Tywin is just chilling in King's Landing because Joffrey is getting married. And by the way, it's not the Sansa Stark. <gasps> XOXO gossip squirrel. But wait, there's more. Stannis lost at the Blackwater. And now the Lannisters are massaging a lot. Stannis lost at the Blackwater, securing an alliance between houses Lannister and Tyrell. Also, your quote-unquote nephew, wink wink, Bruce Bolton knows, is alive and well. Also, your sister. Oh, also your brother. Mm-hmm. They're all fine. Bruce Bolton. More like Bruce Hilton. This is all so inspired. Bravo on your mini lightning round. It's like you never it's not left. It's me. It's Bruce Bolton. Um, all, credit, all credit to our lord. Oh my god. You're inspired. Yeah, our leech lord. Leech Lord! (laughs) Roos finally shows as much compassion as he is capable of. He has Brienne untied. She immediately tells on the brave companions for trying to rape her, and Jamie's hand kind of tells on itself. Again, his hand seems to do that. These jokes just write themselves. Uh, Roos expresses displeasure, and Brienne is now told she is safe in his uh, care. And then he makes a super villainous exit. His cape swirls and everything. His fabulous pink cape yeah. swirls. I want to make sure we highlight this as a fantasy series. And Jamie and Brienne exchange these longing looks before Jamie finally sees a doctor. And it's Kyvern, the best character in the whole thing. Is he? Uh, interesting. Interesting take. Fucking hysterical. Actually, though. Mate. Uh, but for now, Kyburn's alive. The infection is bad, and Kyburn's like, what if we just cut off the whole arm? And Jamie's like, absolutely not. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. He threatens to strangle Kyburn <laughs> if he takes off any part of his arm. Kyburn's like, alright, fine, fine. You're gonna want Book of the Poppy for this. And no, Jamie, we're doing it live, Lannister. Only agrees to wine, which... Hot take. Is this not dumber? <laughs> like, wouldn't that just thin out the blood and make the bleeding worse? Is there any bleeding still? I don't they know. Don't know. I'm not that. a doctor. It's medieval times. I'm not a doctor. Um, I don't know. Anyone who's ever, like, gotten a, t- like, a tattoo is just like, you're not supposed to do that. I mean, people do it all the time. Anyways, it's fine because all that happens is Kyburn's just cutting off a bunch of rotten flesh. It smells bad. Um, and when it's all done, Jamie fainted a little bit. Jamie faints a lot in this chapter. Okay. Kyburn's like, so I didn't cut off any of your arm, and in fact, I let sh- left you a little bit of flesh as a treat. <laughs> Cover your stuff a little. <laughs> gross. <sighs> it's really gross. It's kind of cute in a way, but also not. You know their interaction here. Oh, it's like like when your cat brings you a dead That's animal. True. Like thanks. I Kyber. mean, everything else in this chapter was just so like horrific that this you're like this is maybe almost warm and fuzzy, but not maybe warm and just fleshy. I just don't know what's warm and flush, fuzzy, fleshy yeah. anymore. Like this book has to be fucked up, man. I'm like, is this nice? Is this wholesome? <laughs> this is wholesome right? content. It also, I feel like this reminds me of something that happens in this book, right, Chloe? Oh, was it a chapter that we've talked about before? I mean, maybe. Like, John 6 in A Storm of Swords? That's not too far off, right? That's soon. Uh, and if you remember, 
There's a part where Eamon cuts into John with a hot knife and John swears he will not scream and he broke that vow as well. And that really, of course, reminded me of this part of the episode. So good callback to that. He has freaky, fevery dreams after that, which we're going to get to eventually. Yes. And I mean, very interesting that these all like are coming together similar here. It's a little different though, of course, with John. Like for John, um, for his symbolism as we've discussed like uh for that wound had to do with like egret right for jamie here i kind of wonder like you know the removal and all the care that goes into the scene of the cutting off of the rotten flesh and so much of it have to having to do with scent there's a lot of scents going on and odors in jamie's chapter here right from brienne's and his breaths and here with the stinking of the pus and the painful process, right, of removing that rotten flesh, is this like a metaphor for Jamie's character development? He goes through a lot of pain, right, in order for him to heal. And what does it take to save the man underneath? Unfortunately, like, for Jamie, this mutilation is very special and significant. Not, like, in a good way, obviously, but it is a very significant moment in his life. But it's not significant for Vargo Hope because he does this shit all the yeah. time. He's just, like, out there cutting people up, and Kyburn's like, yeah, I have to heal people up all the time and sew them up, man. Like, uh, by the way, welcome to my life story, Kyburn says. And he's like, I'm just going to tell you about it. And Jamie's like, that's good, because I can't fucking do anything right now because my hand's gone completely. Uh, so Kyburn's like, well, I was going to be a maester once, and then I lost my chain. No reason, haha, don't <laughs> ask. And then Jamie's like, can you tell me something useful, like, about the Blackwater and... Kyburn starts to tell him about what happened and Jamie thinks immediately of the green fire and he thinks he's dreamed this before and there's this, oh, this passage, this quote that's so good. Jamie saw green flames reaching up into the sky, higher than the tallest towers, as burning men screamed in the streets. I have dreamed this dream before. It was almost funny, but there was no one to share the joke. Yeah. Really... Ah, so good. It, this is like such a great line. It's such a great hint, right? It, it shows like Jamie's loneliness, and it's such a great hint towards the Ares reveal, and like why the Blackwater hits home for him in a different way. Yeah, and the way that this chapter is completely formatted, right? Like it opens up his hand burned, mm. and here it is. Then you have the fires in the sky, and I mean, think about the Tower of the Hand burning. There's all too much, like, wildfire going on in the Lannister family for Jamie to be comfortable. He's all like, what? what? Why is this a thing that you're choosing? Yeah, and I love that he dreams this before, and it's the nightmares that he's had of Aerys' court, and Aerys doing this, obviously. But he's seeing it in his mind right now, and yes, it's coming as a traumatic flash. But at the same time, I would argue that he's thinking in his mind of if it's in Cersei's power. Does Cersei know about it? Is she going to use it? Yeah. He doesn't know what's happening. He has no news. This is the first news he's gotten, and all he can think is, how is that flame going off? Yeah, and I mean, he kind of, like, knows it's Tyrion, but he he doesn't really truly understand his sister's connection. Yeah, Whoa. with all of this, yeah. And, like, it's something that comes through in Feast, of course. Um, something that I, I, I'm just going to pull up randomly is, like, it reminds me of how... So in Avatar The Last Airbender, Blue Fire is like significant and tied with Azula. 
right? And part of the reason that, like, the creators did that is not just because, like, A, it wasn't just because, like, blue flames are hotter. They kind of just did it as a stylistic choice, right, to distinguish her. And you end up kind of getting that, right, with House Lannister. They end up becoming distinguished by their use of wildfire and that green. I don't know. They're just like, this is cool. Imagery. You can yeah. you can associate it with them now. <laughs> well, speaking of associating, Kyburn's like, what the fuck happened to your eyeball? Because Jamie's just got a big old brute on his eye. And Jamie's like, I got it from a wench. Excuse me? We have come so far, Jamie. You're so close. So close. Just say your name. He's just... When no one's around you, say baby you love her. Kyburn. He's like, I can't tell Kyburn that I have feelings. Kyburn oh my God. is like, but he, he senses it a little, you know, he, he can kind of feel it. He's like, hmm, did I see a slight blush there when Jamie said, oh, a wench, right? And teases him about rough wooing. That actually isn't in the text. That's something I made up. Um, Jamie once again pulls the Sindari act. He's like, you should just focus on tending Brienne's wounds. She got hurt too. Not that I'm doing it for her. Yeah, why? Why would I do why, that, Jamie? Why, why should he care <laughs> about this wench? And then we end with some banter about Roose being into leeches. Everything sucks. Dude, Jamie Lannister just walked into like a fucking snuff porn. Like, Hall is Rob Zombie gone wrong. You have Vargo carving chugs off people, making them fight bears, getting them naked in bathtubs. It's like a horror movie. It actually is. And I guess like that's what Hall is supposed to feel like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but kind of like worse. It doesn't feel haunted. It just feels like... The, the, the haunting isn't being done by ghosts, right? And I think that's something that's significant. It's all terrible because of the people. And then, as Nada Cast pointed out, you've got 1984 basically happening in Harrenhal at the beginning of this book, or when we're at Harrenhal in general. And I'm really excited because we're actually going to explore more of this when we talk about the Brave Companions in our <laughs> Patreon episode. That's for patrons $5 and <laughs> Perhaps we. And, and, and perhaps... We are actually the ones who are brave and companions in diving into the subject. It's Girls Gone Companions. That sounds lewd. <sighs> oh my god. It sounds like we're in this Rob Zombie film gone worse too. Oh my god. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be in this film. I don't want to be in Hall, but we're going to be in Hall next week too when we cover Jamie 5. And hopefully you will be away from the birds. I think I will be. I probably will be. Yeah, everything's coming oh, up. The birds. That's another. That's another horror film. Fingers crossed. Well, based on the Brave Companions oh, by George R. R. Martin. <laughs> well, you guys, thanks so much for listening to us this week. I'm sorry for the way yeah, we are. And, and again, <laughs> sorry for the quality of the audio. Um, thanks for coming along with me on my trip. That is. Uh, face some obstacles you know there's a lot of challenges in the world today it's an opportunity i like to say you're having a lot of opportunities every <laughs> that's, day that's a way to put it um and you <laughs> dear listeners can follow all those different opportunities along with us on social media you can find us at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n um on twitter or perhaps you have something that you would like to say about the world but maybe also the brave companions we're not actually doing a patreon episode on the brave companions at this moment uh, and you can shoot us an email at girlsgodcanon at gmail.com or maybe you really want us to you can let us know if that's something that you actually legit want and we'll figure it out we'll figure it out we've done weirder 
Subscribe to us on our podcasting platforms. We're available on many with our RSS feed, but we are hosted on Podbean. We're on Spotify. We're on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, you name it. Yes. And of course, again, we do have a Patreon where for $5 and up, you might not get an episode about the Brave Companions, but we do have special episodes this past month. Uh, Chloe was joined by guests to discuss his dark materials in the latest book um, from the Book of Dust prequels, but this is technically a sequel, whatever, The Secret Commonwealth, I fucked that up, whatever, and... This month, though, we will be returning to A Song of Ice and Fire, so stay tuned to find out what that episode topic will be. Yes, and that is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon for our $5 and up patrons. We are so thankful for all of your support, you guys. Thanks so much for joining us every week, all of you. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. I'm baking in this room. So hot. (laughs) Thanks for joining Eliana in her themed episode where she is getting ready for Jamie 5. Yeah, getting ready for the sauna episode ahead of time. God, all these trips, they make you travel and travel. For sure. They make you sweat yeah. and sweat. They make you motherless and damned. <sighs> goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, guys.